essentially it's getting people to try and think about the question of, well, what does Montana look like with weaker higher education institutions? This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is all about creativity and hustle happening in and around the great state of Montana. This week's episode is a special feature. We put together three guests uh, to discuss higher education and the importance of funding higher education here in the state of Montana. As many of you know, this November uh, on the ballot will be the six mil levy. The six mil levy is a popular referendum that comes up every 10 years. It's been approved by popular referendum uh, every 10 years since 1948, and it funds higher education. It represents a significant chunk of funding for the Montana University system. Now, to be clear, as an employee of the state of Montana, I cannot be using this position to advocate a particular way of voting on this initiative. But what I can do is tell you that it is very important that you get out there and vote, that you do your civic duty. That's the purpose of this episode, to bring awareness about the six mil levy, to educate you on our politicians' views toward it, and give you some of the economic information associated with it. So how are we going to do that? Well, we kick it off with uh, 15 minutes with Senator John Tester. Senator John Tester has a rich heritage, both personally and in terms of his family, uh, in higher education and in public education. And he goes through a, a lot of that history, and you can see how it shaped his perspective. After Senator Tester, we hear from Congressman Greg Gianforte, who brings a very different perspective, uh, one that is sort of manifest uh, or one that is born out of his success as a tech entrepreneur. And so he gets into the role of education in sort of providing a platform for entrepreneurs to then go and create create meaningful contributions to the economy. Um, to be clear, we did reach out to Senator Steve Daines' office, but didn't get a response. But what we've done here is we've tried to make a good faith effort to represent the views of our uh, statewide elected officials, but also voices from both sides of the political aisle. And then to close down the episode, we bring in our favorite economist, uh, Bryce Ward. As you might recall, Bryce was the first guest on A New Angle, and we discussed his extensive research on higher education and funding for higher education so his is an important voice to bring us the sort of economic reality of public investment in higher education and to get his thoughts on the views of both the senator and the congressman. So anyway, important issue. I'm excited to bring you this uh, sort of threesome of guests. Their voices are different, but uh, very powerful on this issue. And um, first, we'll turn it over to Senator John Tester. So first of all, thank you, for, Senator, for coming on the podcast. We're excited to have you. We're producing an episode on public education and the importance of funding pub public education in the state of Montana with a focus on the, the six mil levy vote. And um, just wanted to kind of get into your history in public education. I mean, you've been a huge supporter of public education for many years and went to bat for us in a big way uh, with the Upward Bound Scholarship uh, issue last year. Can you maybe speak about that? Yeah, I, I sure can. I, I'm going to back up a little bit because I think we are who we are today. Much of the influence is by our parents and, and, and in my case, uh, my grandparents, even though they died when I was very, very young. But my mother, who was a, a child of the Depression, uh, born in 1920, uh, had two sisters and a brother. And my grandparents, this was in the 30s, felt that it was very, very important that those girls went to college and got a college degree. 
uh, and this was in the 1930s. And in fact, all three of them did, and were all teachers at one point in time or another. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to tell you that perspective went through uh, my parents and my I've got two older brothers, and the, they both went to college. And uh, part of the reason they ended up being successful in life is because of that experience sure. in higher education. And 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 I would tell you that I wouldn't be here today uh, as a you in the United States Center from the state of Montana had I not went out and got a bachelor's science in music. Uh, it, it's very, I think it's very, very important in building the whole person. And so because of that input, uh, not only did I go to college, but uh, I taught for a couple of years. Uh, and then I served on the school board for nine years. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that I, I, I saw firsthand the importance of good classroom teachers and the importance of the teacher and making sure facilities were up to snuff and so the learning environment was was appropriately creative and uh, and also saw the importance that uh, everybody in the school system made, whether it was the custodian or the, the school secretary or there was a superintendent or the principal, uh, but most importantly that teacher that was in the classroom and those kids mm-hmm. uh, as they came in uh, making sure that they were not hungry, not sick, and and be able to move forward. So when I'm I'm looking at policies here uh, in Washington D.C., that's what I view it on. I, I I was told at a very young age, and I believe this to my core, that public education is one of the reasons our democracy has uh, flourished for the last 200 years, or or survived for the last 200 years, however you want to look at it. Um, and so we need to. Uh, you know, we need to support that. So whether it's a, a, a TRIO program, which helps first-generation college kids graduate uh, that was denied because of a technicality in Washington, D.C. of Secretary DeVos, and we raised some heck about that mm-hmm. and, and actually introduced bills that would limit her budget if she didn't um, really wake up to the fact that this was a good program that worked very, very well for 50 years. Um and put enough pressure where she was able to re- reverse her decision. But the truth is, is what she did is she just made the right decision because it was ridiculous to throw out a, a, a uh, application because of one page, I think, out of like 50 was single space instead of double space. And when right. I talk about draining the swamp, holy mackerel. So when it comes to issues, whether it's TRIO or whether it's uh, making sure that we have college affordability and make sure there's Pell Grants there and and those and those kind of low interest loans available or whether it's the six mil levy. I am going to continue to support uh, public education, higher education, because I think our economy depends on it and our democracy depends on it. And we have along those lines, we have a new president here at the University of Montana with a really interesting leadership background, and he has been. Um, speaking a lot on the importance or the role of higher education in producing future leaders. Can you, can you speak a little bit to that and um, the importance of, of developing leaders at our institutes of higher learning? Yeah, I think it's one of, the, one of the real key takeaways, even though oftentimes as a student you go to uh, learn about, uh, in my case, music or maybe history or you learn to be a uh, research, work in research, or, or whatever it may be, but but one of the one of the side benefits I think is, is very important is is we develop leaders, and I think we develop them uh, on a couple different fronts. Um, I think teaching kids how to think critically is really important, and I think I don't think that's something that comes 
about by accident. I think it's something that is instilled upon kids by their parents and by their teachers and, and further instilled in higher education. And I think that critical thinking is a, is a foundational element to leadership. Uh, to be able to sort through the baloney, so to speak, and get to the issues that are really important and be able to sort through, especially in this day and age, the vast amount of information we get to try to get down to what is real and what is fake is, is really, really, really important. And uh, I think at the university level, um, you have the ability to be able to try to emphasize those things. And sometimes it's, it's not even done intentionally, but, but most of the time it is to be able to teach kids to be able to sort young young adults I should say to be able to sort through uh, the information and to be able to think through it and and be able to determine what's important and what is not and so and I think that leadership is 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 very very important uh, not only in government uh, but also in business and also in your family and uh, and I think it's it's one of the things that helps move our country forward and and quite frankly, make us the greatest country in the world. And that is why when we talk about education pricing uh, or the cost of education pricing kids out of the ability to go to college and, and get a higher education degree, I think those impacts, uh, even though they're felt in business and, and even though they're felt in the number of entrepreneurs that are out there uh, you know, taking chances and, and moving the ball forward in our economy, it's also felt in, in, in leadership. And, um, you know, I, I just think that, uh, uh, you know, as, as we look at the whole picture of higher education, oftentimes we forget about the leadership component. And I think it's inherent to our educational process. And as far as the president of the university goes, I think that his background is a bit unconventional mm -hmm. to be a president of a university. But I think he brings qualities of leadership and qualities of higher education that I think uh, the University of Montana needs right now. And I, I look forward to working with him, and I look forward to him having a very successful tenure at the University of Montana. Yeah, certainly interesting times. And speaking to that that point about critical thinking and the importance of sort of sorting through the baloney and, you know, what's true and what's not, you know, it's a changing news environment. It's a changing business environment, and we have to change as as a university. And can you you have any thoughts on how we can do a better job of responding to the market demands? Well, I think that, um, first of all, um, we've got two ears and one mouth. We need to act accordingly. And I think listening to uh, Main Street businesses, listening to the tech community, listening to the folks that are in manufacturing is critically important as a higher education unit. I think it's very, very, very important. And to be able to touch base with, with the folks and be able to uh, get the facts on what's important to them, uh, to be able to sustain and move economy forward is, I think it, it's really important to be able to listen to employers to find out what their needs are as far as a skilled workforce go, to be able to make sure that the university is is uh, flexible in, in, in training programs um, so that um, uh, so that they can meet the needs of the business community with a skilled workforce is, is really important. And, and then, of course, which what I consider a staple of a four-year university is, is, is those entrepreneurs out there and making sure that we get those folks' experience both in the classroom out in the community is really important. And then the other, the other issue, uh, Justin, is, is being able to vision forward, which is really, really tough. You know, we have um, 
we had been going along in a flat line for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. we were walking, and then we got horses, and then we got cars, and then we've got jet planes. And now it's like we're moving at the speed of light. Thing is changing so fast. And the university has to um, uh, look out, whether it's a professor in the classroom or whether it's leadership at the top, they have to look out and say, you know, this is what we think is going to be happening 10 or 20 years from now. And this is the direction we're going to push our university. And that's very, very difficult because right. because we don't know. I mean, I, I can tell you that I don't know what my grandkids are going to be doing at the age of 60. They probably will have had multiple jobs at that point in time. They will probably have been trained and retrained. Hopefully they will go to college and, and, and have a good foundation to, to set up that training and retraining. Uh, but in the end, uh, the universities that are going to be successful, the, uh, the units of higher education that are going to be successful are the ones that do the best ability to, to see what job opportunities and what business opportunities are going to be out there in the future. So that, I mean, that dovetails exactly with what you said previously about critical thinking, creativity, and experiential learning. And one thing I think about a lot in the classroom, and it must be on your mind at times, is how to keep students engaged and to prevent them from becoming cynical. Uh, we experienced, you know, last, last, the last election s- season, I just had so many students that didn't want to talk about it. They were cynical. They were disengaging from the process. And how do we combat that? Well, I, I think part of it is to under, understand why they don't want to talk about it and to understand why they've become cynical and try to try to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a fact, and I've said it to just about every group that I've met with under the age of 35, and that is, is that their perceptions of the world and their view of the world is solid. And, and they need to be involved. And if they're involved, the democracy works much, much better. As a policymaker, uh, I need to listen to everybody. And, I, and that means including uh, the folks who uh, are in college or just out of college and, and, and struggling to make a living. And, and we need to listen to them and we need to take their information that they're giving and, and put it into the mix as far as the policies we we deal with back here in Washington, D.C., or at the state level or the county level or the municipality level, whatever it might be. But in order for that to happen, they have to be involved. So they have to understand that their opinion matters and that they can make a difference. I met with a bunch of high school kids from Helena uh, last week or two weeks ago uh, on the issue of safety in schools. And one of the students kept saying, well, I'm just a high school kid. You know, this is my opinion, but I'm just a high school kid. And my point to her was, don't, don't devalue yourself. Your opinion is just as valuable as mine or my aunt and uncles or my brothers and sisters or my cousins or anybody. Uh, so don't devalue that. Know that, that that perception, even though they may not have as much life experience because they're not as old as other people are, they have access to more information today than I ever did at that age. And these guys read and they read and they read some more and they're up on this stuff. And, and I would tell you that the, the, the issues that they think are important, I'm talking about the college kids in particular, are issues that truly are important. So they need to know that there are people out there listening to them and that they just need to make sure that their voice isn't going to get heard by, uh, you know, sitting in the student lounge and drinking coffee. Uh, that's where you develop your thoughts, that's where you do your reasoning, that's where you do your research, and then export that information that you've found, whether it's on the Internet or in the newspaper or, or, or wherever it might be. But 
But they need to know, look, it's always been a problem. It was a problem in my generation. We were, when, when I was 18, 21, um, you know, didn't vote, weren't engaged. Oftentimes these folks are trying to get educated, trying to make a living. They don't have a lot of time to, to fool around. But today it's so easy to contact your elected representatives. And I would just, I would just encourage them that, that if in fact, if in fact, uh, uh, you're inclined to do this, please do it because your input's very, very, very important. And, you know, I served with two legislators right out of high school, uh, and they were darn good. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican. John Brueggemann out of Polson and Jesse Lazovich out of Anaconda, two of the best legislators I ever served with, and they were the youngest members of the body. Hmm. Uh, we've got a young uh, gentleman in this legislature right now by the name of J- Jacob Bachmeyer out of, out of Haver. Smart kid, incredible asset, I think, to the, to the caucus there in, in Helena. And I would just encourage folks, especially in this day of term limits in, in Montana, to get involved, run for office, make a difference because your opinion counts. So along those lines of involvement, if I can sneak in one last question, we need students to be involved to help us get through a pretty major ballot initiative coming up in the fall, and that's the six mil levy. Um, critical funding mechanism for higher education. It's been renewed every year, every 10 years yep. since 1948. Um, you're an expert campaigner. How do we do a better job as an institution making a case for this? Well, I, I would just say this. First of all, you've got to tell the story. And I think the story that, that's going on right now at this moment in time of this generation mm-hmm. is we're not doing right by them. Uh, I always give the, the example when my older brothers went to college. Um, my oldest brother could work a summer driving truck and pay for his college tuition for the entire year. Simply can't do that now. And in fact, when I went to school, um, my folks were able to pay for my education, and they did. When my daughter went to school, my daughter's 37 now, we could pay for about half of it. Um, and the same thing with my son. And they had to pick up the rest in student loans. If that six mil levy goes away, it's going to drive up tuition costs, and it's going to take away opportunity from so many kids. And it's going to take away opportunity for businesses. And it's going to take away opportunity for our economy to be able to expand in the 21st century that we live. And so I think it's 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 very foundational to to uh, affordable education at the higher level and move forward. And I would just tell the students tell the story because they live it every day. Um, professors could be looked at as saying, "Well, you're just doing this because you know you're getting paid. It's your job." The fact is, is the kids, the students, the folks, the, the young adults who are going to college right now, they're the ones that are going to have to pay their debt. And debt takes away opportunity. It takes away opportunity where you want to live. It takes opportunity whether you're going to buy a house or a car or, or um, uh, whether you're going to be able to take a vacation or not once you're in the workforce. So we need to do what we can do. It is really my generation's duty to them to make sure we can do what they can do to make college affordable. And right now, I will tell you that if we don't have the six mil levy, it's going to price a lot of kids out of college. And we need to be working in the opposite direction, not in that direction. Absolutely. Well, Senator Tester, thank you very much for your time and uh, all your insight and wisdom on these topics. I appreciate the opportunity, Justin. You you guys have a great week. Okay, so thanks to the senator for uh, generously spending some time with us. It was interesting to hear how how deep uh, education and public education runs in his heritage uh, throughout his family and how important to him – uh, education is in developing critical thinking and leadership skills. That was that was uh, interesting and, and pretty compelling. So we're going to transition now to the other side of the political aisle. 
but uh, a different perspective on higher education with uh, Congressman Greg Gianforte. As you know, before uh, Congressman Greg Gianforte was a, a, a politician, he was a hugely successful entrepreneur in the tech space. And that experience and that success, I think, has has, has shaped his worldview in a lot of ways toward the role of education. Anyway, I don't want to speak for the congressman. He speaks very well for himself, so we'll turn it over uh, to our 15 minutes with uh, Greg Gianforte. Okay, so we're here today with Congressman Greg Gianforte. Congressman, thank you for coming on the podcast. Justin, my pleasure. So you have been a tremendous supporter of higher education in our state. In fact, you um, recently gave the naming gift for the School of Computing at Montana State University. Is that right? It is. You know, we. I think education is a path forward for a lot of uh, young people. It's the way we develop skills and prepare them for the future. Yeah. And so along those lines, I'd love to just pick your brain on the role of higher education here in the state of Montana. In particular, what do you see uh, the role of higher education being for creating future leaders in our society? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's been real passion for me is is entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And I, I lecture on entrepreneurship in a lot of our high schools and on college campuses. And I'm always surprised when I ask the question of young people and students, how many, you've, how many of you have ever thought of starting your own business? Because at the end of the day, uh, I believe that uh, government doesn't create jobs. It's the private sector that does. Mm-hmm. Businesses are created by um, entrepreneurs, and it's the businesses that create the jobs that allow Montanans and all of us to prosper. Uh, so I, I've been, it, it's an area that's been a focus for me. I'd say that the second area is really in the area of technology. Of course, I'm a little bit of a geek. I'm an electrical engineer by training sure, uh, and uh, have started a number of businesses. But I've been encouraged by some things I've seen in other states. Uh, Wyoming, for example, just made computer science uh, a requirement in high school. Uh, And I personally think computers are here to stay. (laughs) It's incredibly important that we start integrating technology. This is why I was pleased to partner with uh, U of M. I'm taking my congressional hat off for a little bit to provide some additional lecturers for the computer science department there. Absolutely. To start to build cross-disciplinary technology. I think uh, uh, a lawyer with a minor in computer science or a forester with a minor in computer science is just going to be better suited for the workforce. So along those lines, what sorts of you know, it, it it seems to me that we need to change the way we're delivering education here a little bit at University of Montana, but more broadly, how do we adapt to meet the needs of the of the workplace and prepare students to to be entrepreneurial? Well, one of the things I've learned is that I I don't um, I don't it's very hard to teach entrepreneurship right. in the classroom. It it's really experiential, and where I've seen success around the country has been where there are more practicums. Uh, maybe these are projects that are combined with undergraduate or uh, uh, associate degree programs where people go out and at the end of the day, starting a business is, is not complicated. It's, it's very hard, but it's not complicated. Uh, it, it involves making something, either a product or service, selling it to a customer for money, and charging more than it costs you to build it or mm-hmm. deliver it. Um, we end up making it way more complicated. 
uh, and and somehow at an earlier age, uh, both at a college level and I think even back into the high school level, um, we've got to provide some of those experiences for our young people so they can be uh, at least not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur, but it'd be nice to uh, uh, provide that exposure so pe- young people could at least get uh, some idea of what it's about. Right. It seems like there's two sides to that. There's the idea. So what is the process through which you can generate an idea? But also the other side is, does the idea pencil out? So these experiences are maybe opportunities to create um, learning on both sides of that. There's a there's a program that I found down in Texas. It's run by a school down there. They call it the Children's Business Fair. And they start with six-year-olds. And they uh, the interesting thing about starting with kids that are so young is they haven't learned that things are impossible yet. Right. And, and, and they tell these young people, I mean, if you asked a six-year-old, hey, go, go climb the tree, they'd climb the tree. If you said jump in the lake, they'd jump in the lake. If you say to them, hey, do you want to start a business? They say, sure, let's go do that. They don't know that it's hard. And uh, what they found over the last eight or nine years they've been running this program is um, these kids make something with their own hands. They sell it to others for real money, and they charge more than it makes. And there's no adult supervision. Right. And some of these kids make, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars in the weekend that they do this. And they've they've got that seed of an experience that they can take forward with them. I think there's more of that that we could do here in Montana. Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, you've I'm going to presume something you've experienced a big cultural change, having gone from being a hugely successful entrepreneur in your own right to a member of Congress moving into an institution that maybe doesn't move as fast as the organizations you worked for previously. How do we, along those lines, how do we as a university, you know, as an institution, make change faster? And what I mean by that is we have to be nimble in order to create these sorts of experiential opportunities you're talking about. Are there, are there ways that we can change as an institution to, to be able to do that better? Well, I think uh, most change is affected by uh, individuals, uh, you know, there's an old saying that if you uh, if you ask a committee to design a horse, you end up with a camel. Right, and uh, and that and that's part of the issue that there is a uh, human beings. We all of us, including myself, we we tend to be resistant to change. And I, I just had a chance to meet with your new uh, president recently, and I'm uh, I, I was you know very very encouraged. I mean the the regents I think showed some real foresight in picking someone who is outside the box, who will be a real change agent. Because for any, having run many organizations in my professional career, uh, change is hard. And, uh, and yet uh, I think everyone uh, at an objective level would say, hey, maybe U of M needs to refocus a little bit mm-hmm. um, so that they can uh, start to grow and prosper again. Um, and, uh, but that's going to be really hard. Yeah, although going back to your example of the kids that you worked with in that, that, that program in Texas, so capturing students and getting them to engage and trying to prevent them from becoming calcified in their cynicism. You know, how do we, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how do we kind of keep the, the younger generation engaged and hopeful that institutions like UM, institutions like Congress can make meaningful change? Well, I think one of the things is we've got to make sure that we have open and honest debate. And one of the things that troubles me is when we have a free exchange of ideas, I think everyone wins, mm-hmm. even if we don't agree. 
Um, but we've, we have a tendency, and I, and I would say this exists on both, both extremes, both conservative and liberal, that when uh, someone starts to present a position that's unlike our own, there is a tendency to go to name-calling. Right. Just because someone doesn't agree with you does not make them a racist. Uh, and I think we have a responsibility within our communities, within high schools, on college campuses, and in the workplace to to respect the diversity of view without um, degenerating into name-calling. Absolutely. Yeah. seems to shut down debate instantly if you go to name-calling. It, it, it's not... Uh, it's not a way to find common ground. And right. I, and that's from my own experience in business. We, you know, we started this little business in our home in Bozeman. And um, we, in the, in the final five or six years, we were negotiating about a thousand uh, significant contracts with our customers every 90 days. Wow. And in many cultures in Asia and Europe and all over the U S and I spent the bulk of my time on the road visiting with customers and, and you walk into one of these engagements not knowing the individuals on the other side, knowing that they come from very, very often very different backgrounds. Um, and in, in our case, we were negotiating software contracts, but uh, you get very good at listening and making sure you hear what's a win for them and then trying to accommodate in ways that don't violate your own principles um, and also are beneficial for you. And I, and I think this has been the bulk of my professional experience has been in negotiating these agreements. And boy, for my own part, back in Washington, I've been trying to reach out across the aisle and, and build relationships. So there is a basis there to at least have a healthy uh, conversation. Not that two people are going to agree on everything, but without the relationship, again, it tends to degenerate into name calling. Right. Without being able to have the conversation. Absolutely. So, you know, as as we kind of look forward to to November, I know you have a big race coming up in November, but we also have a race that's important to the university system here in Montana, and that is the six mil levy vote. Uh, it's been approved every ten years since uh, 1948 as an important funding mechanism for the university system here. Um, do you have any advice for us as a successful campaigner yourself as to how the university system can make a better campaign, um, asking for taxpayer money this way? Well, I think, you know, this is how we've uh, supplemented uh, funding for education in Montana for a very long time. Uh, I think you have to, you know, uh, features don't sell, benefits sell. And I think if you think about parents who end up, by and large, there are certainly exceptions, by and large, are writing the check. Uh, this is the way that we keep the cost of higher education lower. Uh, and they want to see, they want to see results. Uh, I, I know as I've traveled the state, um, you know, parents that send their young man or woman off to school and, and pay the bill for four years or six years or whatever it takes, have some expectation that that education is going to produce a, um, uh, uh, a young person who has a brighter future, that can, can get a job that's going to allow them to pursue their own American dream, whatever that happens to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in, in certain cases, um, that case hasn't always been made. I think parents also uh, here in the state uh, would love to have their grandkids around. And if we keep graduating young people and the only jobs available are out of the state, uh, boy, that, that, that's harder to do. Um, so I, I would encourage it to appeal to um, the benefits. Um, it certainly here is, 
this funding is is allows education to be um, more affordable, uh, which is a benefit to all Montana families. Access, absolutely. Well, Congressman, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate your insights, and uh, best of luck in the future. Okay, thank you. And I, again, I just want to conclude by saying it's an honor to be uh, the lone voice in the U.S. House for all of Montana. If people have issues with the federal government, please reach out to my office. The website's just gianforte.house.gov, and I'm here to serve. Absolutely. That's just what we did. We reached out, and we heard back from your staff very, very quickly. Thanks very much. You're welcome. This episode of A New Angle was brought to you by the University of Montana's Masters of Public Administration program, recently ranked at 18th most affordable in the nation. This program can be completed entirely online, entirely on campus, or in some combination of the two. It is directed by Sarah Rinfrey, who was recently voted this year's most inspirational teacher here at UM. To learn more, visit www.um.edu and search for public administration. All right, so it was neat to hear both sides of the aisle there, but positive endorsements for higher education uh, or positive sentiments toward higher education from two very different perspectives, but uh, nice to see some common ground there. That's, that's inspiring. Uh, all right, so now we'll turn it over to the economist, Bryce Ward, for his thinking on uh, the returns to higher education in general, but also how uh, the words of the senator and the congressman resonated with him. So I'll turn it over to Bryce Ward. Okay, so I'm here today with Bryce Ward. Bryce, you are the first return guest on A New Angle. Thanks for coming back. Wow, I feel special. We didn't scare you away. (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah, so you've heard the thoughts of Senator Tester and uh, Congressman Gianforte on funding for higher education. And um, any, any responses in general to those two commentaries? I thought they had interesting perspectives that were different, yeah. uh, but both are certainly within the realm of what people who do research on the effects of education or in higher education tend to find. Um, you know, so there's, uh, Tester was more about kind of critical thinking and yep. uh, ex- experience and, you know, kind of making a whole person or something like that, I think is mm-hmm. what he said. Uh, Gene Forte was much more about, oh, this is productive and valuable. And um, they're both the perspectives of education that you hear. So it's nice to hear them both uh, be put out there. Um, and it's also good that both are also true, right? Uh, we don't have to choose from, you know, it's not just one is right and one is wrong. I think both are correct. Yeah, that was particularly refreshing to get politicians on either side of the aisle to sort of both be talking in terms of things that are supported by the evidence. And so that's why I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on all of this. Um, funding for higher education and the uh, Sigma levy in particular coming up in the fall, just kind of get in a sense for what the research shows us um, as to return. I mean, you and I have spoken about returns to higher education, but I wanted to get into, is there anything known about returns to higher education uh, investment here in the state of Montana? Sure. Um, so last time, I think we talked mostly about kind of what I'll call private returns or individual returns. And mm-hmm. those are great, but, you know, they don't necessarily, they don't always auger for why does the public need to get involved, yeah. right? So the real question is, is well, what are the things that uh, might break down or why, where might the failure be if we just had an entirely private system, right? So right. why do we want to put public money into education? Why do we put public money into education? Or what are the returns to society that we get? Sure. Um, and there's 
the research on private returns is much larger, but there is a literature that seeks to try and expand, uh, you know, investigate, okay, well, what are the spillover benefits um, and costs, if, 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 if any, uh, to investments in higher education? And basically, the literature has looked at things like, you know, so the standard is kind of economic output and productivity. Right? Okay. So um, while putting more, you know, while you getting a college education makes you more productive, it turns out that you being more productive makes other people more productive. Sure. Right? Contagion effect. It's sure. contagion effect. And, you know, one very famous study by a guy named Enrico Moretti, who's a professor at Berkeley, um, he finds that for a, every one percentage point increase in the share of college graduates within a community, mm -hmm. wages for people without high school degrees or with only high school degrees go up by, I think it's 1.8 and 1.6%. Wow. Um, and then other college graduates benefit by like a fraction of a percent, okay. right? So those are the, the spillover benefits, yep. right? And, you know, he's done a bunch of follow-up work, which kind of gets really micro, right? Like uh, one thing he did was look at plants, right? So we'll go look at factories. <laughs> Manufacturing plants. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know, uh, not, not pots. Yeah, not plants uh, in the ground. You know, manufacturing facilities. Got it. Um, and, you know, go find similar manufacturing facilities across different communities and then ask what happens to productivity at those over time when the share of educated people changes in that community. Sure. And it turns out that they, be, you know, uh, factories in places that get more educated become more productive. Okay. Um, and at even more micro level, um, you know, they literally tracked like, I think it was like maybe salespeople on a floor. Um, and they, you know, where you were spaced on the in the store, okay, right? And then, you know, they, they looked at how close you were to the most productive person and the people who worked closer to the person who was more productive became more productive themselves, wow. right? So there's lots of spillover. Yeah, what benefits. kind of mechanisms? Do, you know, mean, it's, it, it, they, there's a bunch, there's, there's some hypotheses of, you know, some of it's just about observation. Sure, yeah. Uh, some of it is about just social pressure. Mm -hmm. Like I see this other person doing well, I feel like I need to do better. Yeah. Um, some, you know, so those are, I think the two is like, there's kind of a social, like, you know, oh, hey, I need to do better. Yeah, like impression um, management of some kind. Yeah, and the other is I just learn, right? Like, oh, yeah. what's he doing or what's she doing? Yeah. Um, uh, they're doing well, you know. And so, you know, so there's there's those kinds of spillovers that we we think we've observed. But it's yeah. not just about, you know, kind of standard. Well, actually, it's worth finishing up, you know, all those wage increases, including just the private returns and me being more educated, you know, that means there's more money in our economy. And then ultimately there's a return that pays back the investment. Sure. Right. And then again, we have, I haven't done anything for Montana, but there are two studies, one in Texas and one in California. And one kind of looked at every state, although at a career level and, you know, the, the, the implied returns and there's some, we could get into a bunch of weeds in the technical details here, but broadly these studies find very large rates of return to social investment in higher education or public mm -hmm. investment in higher education, mm -hmm. right? Like double digits, right? Yeah. Um, so one study, which is a decade old, but did have a Montana line in it, said that the rate of return, just in terms of the tax base, sure. Um, the tax base rate of return on investments in higher education, I think was 19%. Wow. Um, so, you know, there's that yeah. kind of standard, you know, increase the size of the economy stuff. But there's also stuff about saving money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when uh, people who become more educated are less likely to commit crimes. Um, crime is yeah. very costly social, you know, you know, there's lots of what we call negative spillovers or negative externalities with crime. So to the extent that education causally, and there's some evidence to believe it's causal, though it's, you know, not a super large literature, um, 
uh, to the extent that education helps reduce crime, um, you know, those are benefits. To the yeah, extent that education um, helps meet people healthy, um, saves the money because money because we pay for a lot of health care. Uh, to the extent that education makes people better parents, right? Um, we end up spending less money on their kids because their kids are less likely, you know, more likely to become educated themselves and less likely to get sure. into trouble. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's all these other savings that come along with it. And then, you know, these were the Texas and California studies where they tried to actually capitalize both the wage stuff as well as the cost saving stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and the, 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 the number in both Texas and California were about the same. Uh, you know, in Texas, it was $4 returned on every dollar invested. And in wow. California, it was $3.65 returned on every dollar. Invested. That's pretty amazing. Um, so, you know, higher ed has pretty big, pretty substantial uh, returns. And, um, you know, so that's why ultimately, you know, you tend to observe this and you, you tend to have support for, uh, you know, some level of public involvement in sure. higher ed. So... Yeah, I feel like we did like a little micro, I'm not a micro, a Freakonomics special micro episode there. The shortest one ever. Yeah, yeah. well done. Um, So, you know, the the next piece of this is kind of storytelling, right? So how do, you know, if if we as an institution want the public to support us uh, more readily, and we don't get a lot of public support here at University of Montana, how, how do we make a better case? How do we tell our story better? How do we take those compelling uh, empirical results and translate them into stories that would appeal to a taxpayer? It's tough, right? Because a lot of these are... Or a potential student and a family looking at putting their first you know, child through college or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the storytelling piece is much easier at the individual level, right? And that's what you hear, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think Gene Forti told his story, maybe alluded to an individual kind of story of, mm-hmm. you know, and actually Tester did too, right? He went off, he got his degree in music and, you know, made him a whole person, I think, right. something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's the easy story to tell. I mean, it's really hard to say, well, it's a 1% increase in wages for other people. Like, you know, I mean, you know, and we avoid some crime. I mean, people are really bad at, you know, the not observed counterfactual, right? The fact that something yeah. that would have occurred didn't. Right. Right. That is something that people have really hard times getting their brains around. Mm-hmm. So storytelling in that regard is difficult. Right. We, you know, we could put out the numbers and people can look at the numbers and some people who are more uh, inclined to think like that, they might get some story out of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the harder thing is to tell that big aggregate social story. You know, it's essentially it's getting people to try and think about the question of, well, what does Montana look like with weaker higher education institutions, right? And again, even with the six mil levy, we're not saying that the universities would go away, right? right? We're talking about losing like 10% of Mm -hmm. funding, which of course is non-trivial and would actually have, you know, potentially large impacts on enrollment and opportunity. You know, and that's the other, I think that's the other piece of the social return, which isn't kind of standard costs and benefits and the kind of aggregate just, oh, we have more money here and we have less money here. But there, you know, to the extent there's a social benefit or, you know, we as a society ascribe a benefit to opportunity. Um, you know, that tends to be, I think, the story that you tell, which is, you know, if you raise tuition, it will decrease enrollment yeah. uh, in the universities in Montana. And it will, it's all from in-state because presumably out-of-state tuition isn't super time and maybe a sign in some way, but you know, it's going to be 
you're closing the door on an opportunity for you know some set of Montanans at the margin of going to college. Right. Right. And you know, to the extent that we don't want to foreclose that opportunity, to the extent that we want people to have the at least the choice uh, to go and pursue this particular avenue for their life um, and pursue all the private returns and then the spillover social benefits. You know, we, you know, that's some of the stuff I think we don't want to necessarily. I mean, that's some. I guess I think quick back to your point. That's the more compelling story that's easier to tell. Yeah, that, is, that closing the door language. You know, it's negatively framed, but it's pretty powerful kind of metaphor to think about it. Yeah, I mean, we know that uh, for individual, you know, and this is many individuals have told their story, right, about how they feel. And you know, I think I talked about this maybe in the last one. Um, you know, ninety percent of people who graduate from college say that it was worth it, hmm. right? Uh, and it was worth it in terms regardless of, of the level of debt. Regard, worth it given what you paid for it. Yeah, given right? what you paid for it. Yeah, right. So you know, for most people, either they're hardwired to tell themselves that it was worth it because otherwise, why did they do it? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, if we just say if we don't be wonky about it, we just kind of say, well, look, people are telling us that we should kind of take them at face value. Sure. Um, you know, that suggests that there really is value to individuals, and if we don't if we erect higher barriers, we kind of take those opportunities away from some people. Mm -hmm. um, and that yeah, seems like an undesirable thing to do as a society, at least from my personal perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I can certainly, uh, well, I can't, I can't explicitly agree with you because on this podcast, <laughs> we have to be agnostic with regard to the six mil levy. But what we can do is encourage everyone to vote, to get out there and vote. Um, in November. And that's one thing that, you know, you and I have worked together on voter turnout. And so, um, yeah, Bryce, thanks for sharing with us some thoughts on the six mil levy on funding for higher education and just being the first uh, return customer here. Happy to be here. All right. Thanks, until, Justin. Until next time. All right. That was fun. Thanks to Bryce. Thanks to Senator Tester and thanks to Congressman Greg Gianforte. Again, this is a really important issue. Get out there and vote in November. All sorts of reasons to vote, but the six mil levy is a compelling reason to get out and, uh, and cast your, do your civic responsibility, people. Get out there and vote. Next week, we kind of bring the lens back to the local stage. And uh, I want to bring to you a person who just plays such a vital role in this Missoula uh, community. And I'm talking about Meg Witcher. Meg, many of you know, uh, maybe not by name, but by sort of her spirit. Her spirit infuses many things in this town, but most prominently the wonderful things going on at Missoula Parks and Rec. We talk about, she runs a ton of kids programs, kids camps, but probably most prominently the derailleurs program. We talk about that and we just talk about the infectious energy for movement and healthy outdoor play and recreation that Meg brings to her and her team. And uh, she's just such an important activist in a way in this community. So excited to bring you Meg next week. And um, we hope to see you then. Remember that a new angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're one of the largest electrical wholesale companies in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately owned business to business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in Missoula. 
and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. Moving forward, if you have any suggestions for guests, for guests, moving forward, if you have any suggestions for guests, cool people doing awesome things with creativity and hustle, please let us know. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the show. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, please just tell your friends about it. In addition, you can support A New Angle financially. For information on sponsorship opportunities, please visit our website, www.business.umt.edu slash a new angle. There you will also find a link to support the pod. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few people for making this project happen. First of all, Elizabeth Willey, Communications Director here at the University of Montana College of Business. I'd also like to thank recent UM graduate Michelle DeFluke and our fabulous interns Savannah Sletton and Max Gibson. And a special thanks to VTO for providing the show with music. Finally, thanks to my producer, Stefan Borson. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.